This week, joining us on the rocks, we have Gerard Barron, the CEO and chairman of The Metals Company. Gerard is on a mission to help wean humanity off fossil fuels and transition to a circular resource economy. He's a seasoned entrepreneur with a track record of building global companies in battery technology, media, and future-oriented resource development, both as a chief executive and a strategic investor. Today, we cover deep sea mining. Is it science fiction or reality? In this episode, we discuss Nodules 101, the technology that makes sea mining possible, and how these metals can help the green energy transition. Grab a glass of Jefferson's Ocean or Bundaberg rum, and let's dive in. Well, Gerard, thanks so much for uh, joining us here on the rocks. Uh, I think you've got a cocktail over on that side. What are you drinking today? You know, today I'm drinking uh, what I tend to drink, Bundaberg rum. Mm. And um, it's one of their special brews. I, I tend to like the normal underproof Bundaberg, but someone gave me this anniversary edition. So, yeah, look, it's um, some people think of it as, as paint stripper, but as a Queenslander, <laughs> you know, I've grown to like it a lot more since I've lived away from Australia than I did when I lived there. And um, yeah. yeah, so that's what I'm drinking today. I would drink it with Coke normally. That's how bad it is. You've got to put Coke with it. <laughs> but because yeah. this is a special yeah. edition, uh, it's I'm just got some in the glass neat. So awesome, very cool. Well, I honor of uh, having you on as a guest and talking a little bit about the metals company. I'm drinking Jefferson's Ocean, which is a uh, a straight bourbon small batch whiskey that is aged at sea. And uh, the bourbon that's in this bottle specifically came from their Voyage 19. And they actually, it's a really cool little thing that they do. They tell you exactly where the boat went while the bourbon was on board. So it's pretty, pretty neat. I was trying to see if at any point this boat would have gone close by your project in the Clipperton zone. And it did cross the Pacific multiple times, but their map isn't accurate enough for me to see if it went too close. Um, but yeah. Wow, that's, so it's, that's marketing to a whole new level, isn't it? Oh my goodness. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, they get really specific. They have the ship's log for all of the voyages and it is pretty neat. And they talk about why, how the weather of where the ship's gone through affects, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, or like you said, if it's the marketing, but I'm impressed by it. I think it's a neat, neat gimmick at a minimum. So cheers. Well, cheers. Yeah. Well, on that, so I'm really interested to have you on today because I was just sharing with you before this. I think when people hear deep sea mining, they think it's really gone from like science fiction, essentially, to reality in a really fast period of time to where folks are like, whoa, 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 we got to slow down, right? Like... What's all this yeah. crazy stuff going on? <laughs> and I don't think most, even mining people understand like the history of deep sea mining and how long this has been talked about, thought about and worked on. So I was wondering if you could kind of kick it off by giving us a little history lesson of, of how this industry came to be and, and where we are now. I'd love to. Well, it's um, 150 year anniversary this year actually, when HMS Challenger wow. went sailing around the world. And it was, a, it was a converted gunship, which they turned into a science exploration vessel funded by the Royal Society here in London. And um, they had no idea how deep the ocean was, right? They didn't know if it was five miles deep or, or 100 miles deep. And so they loaded it with dozens and dozens of miles of rope. And thankfully, the 
steam piston had been developed. And so they were able to, to drag this basket behind the HMS Challenger and traverse the oceans of the world for four years and haul it up and record what they had. And they actually found nodules in many of the oceans, but it was this one little patch in the CCZ, I say little, it's over 4 million square kilometers in size, where they realized the abundance of these nodules, which I have in my hand, yeah. was so high. Also, the grade of them was so high as well, because this one is full of nickel, copper, cobalt, and manganese. Whereas the nodules in some of the other oceans are uneconomic. They're not worth picking up. You know, fast forward then to the late 1960s, early 1970s, and the industry almost got started. It actually got a helping hand from the CIA uh, that you know about. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is one of my favorites. <laughs> oh my goodness, you couldn't make this up, could you? Um, there was a sunken yeah. Russian submarine and the Americans had a listening device in the Pacific. And so they had a fair idea where it was, but the Russians had no idea. And of course, the Americans wanted to get hold of it to see how advanced the Russians were with regards to their nuclear program, because it was a nuclear-powered sub. And they hired Howard Hughes to be the front man and that he was going collecting nodules. And, um, and so that, that really allowed them to spend some hundreds of millions of dollars to, under the guise of polymetallic nodule collecting. But then it started to get all these industrial partners in. So Mitsubishi, BP, Shell, Lockheed Martin, they were all in there. And they built the harvester that, you know, went 4,000 meters below sea level and put down this riser that it weighed 3,000 tons back then and, and collected about 1,500 tons of nodules. And um, Kennecott, now mm -hmm. by Rio Tinto, built the onshore processing plant. And so it was underway. And then, of course, the world hadn't agreed who owned the oceans. And so Henry Kissinger wrote to all of the ambassadors of the UN and said, hey, you know, we want to develop this part, patch of the Pacific Ocean. You know, we'd like your authority to do so. And of course, you know, you can just imagine all the ambassadors at the UN getting together to say, hey, Charlie, did you get that letter from Kissinger? It's like, that didn't sound too equitable, yeah. did it? So of course they said no, and yeah. everything had to go on pause. And, and then um, it was finally agreed in 1982 through the document UNCLOS, which was the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea where your boundaries begin and end. And that basically said, as a sovereign, you own everything within 12 miles of your coastline. You have an economic right to everything within 200 miles, but beyond that, it's not yours. In fact, it's deemed the common heritage of humankind. And they set up this body known as the International Seabed Authority to govern the high seas. And they are the organization who have granted us our exploration licenses today. So. There's a lot of history, I mean, dating back to the 1870s. And uh, you're right, I, I hear people say, oh, it's, where has this come from? Out of the blue, we haven't done enough science. It's like, we've been doing the science in this area since the 1970s. I mean, NOAA, the US agency, presented their environmental impact study to the Senate in the late 1980s. Wow. And it was a very comprehensive four-year program. Their conclusions were that they didn't see any risk of environmental damage subject to monitoring the plume. And uh, of course, that's all the work mm -hmm. now. So, so it's an exciting time. Folks that are maybe new to this space, 
may not even know what we're talking about when we see nodules. What are these nodules that you're picking up off the seafloor and why are they so important? So they are polymetallic nodule. They precipitate the metals that are in the seawater or the sediment upon which they sit. So they're a hydroxide. Mm. And it's like a big ion exchange down there with the manganese really being the binding compound. And so they grow. So this one in my hand is about 4 million years old. And on two of our blocks, we've identified about 1.6 billion tons of these. And the advantage with how we identify them is because they're lying on the ocean floor, a little bit like golf balls on a driving range, it means we don't have to drill holes. We can literally take pictures of them. Mm -hmm. So it means the resource certainty is really high. And one of the things we've accumulated is bathymetric survey data covering about 180,000 square kilometers of seafloor. And so we've moved some of the resource from inferred to indicated and measured. And, and for those that understand 43101s, when we compared the measured to the inferred, we had a mm -hmm. 6% improvement in measured. That's how high mm -hmm. the certainty the resource is. Whereas normally you tend to lose 20, 50, 70% of your resource as you go up the certainty path. Yeah, and so that's what they are. And our job is to collect them in the most efficient way. Think of it as a bulk commodity, most effective and lowest impact way. So we can then move them to shore. So it's like a, think of it as harvesting a paddock of wheat. There's a production vessel mm. that's moving along at one or two miles an hour. And there are harvester robots that are on the seafloor. That paddock of wheat, we put the nodules up to the production vessel, and then every now and then we offload them to a transporter, and then that transporter takes them to shore to process them into battery metals. Mm -hmm. And some of those runs will go like 75 miles, and then you turn around and come back. Wow. <laughs> so it's like it's, uh, the, the little uh, vacuum robots yeah. that you can yeah. get to do your whole house. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when you talk about the resources, I wonder, because um, we deal a lot with 43101s and JORC data, did you have to figure out a way to quantify the resources when you started to do this? Because so much of that is, I would assume, is so different mm. from how like terrestrial mining projects quantify their resources. Mm. Did you have to like figure out a whole new way to do that? Well, we're very fortunate that our chief development officer, Tony O'Sullivan, used to be part of the global exploration team at BHP. And so mm. brought a heap of experience on the geology side to the table. And then it was a case of working with our independent experts. And um, Ian Lipton is the person that signed off our technical report and mm -hmm. just helping them with the data. And when the data has been provided. I mean, if you look at the assays, you can look down a page of a hundred samples and you'll just see no variance. 1.4, 1.4, like it's, it, I mean, to me as a non-geologist, I go, oh, that's good. But geologists go, oh my God, like you've got no idea this is. So that makes, makes it a whole lot easier when we think about processing as well, that we've got a consistent feed of material and so on. But, uh, but yeah, look, there were some learnings for sure. And AMC, signed off our most recent technical report with Ian leading that. And, you know, I guess he's the leader in that field now as a result. 
Yeah. And I think it's funny because we uh, on Prospector, you know, we have like an interactive map, right, where you can see where all of the projects mm -hmm. on public companies, where, where we have tech reports. And we often <laughs> get like, I think you've got some projects that aren't located correctly because you've got these off in the Pacific. And it's like, no, <laughs> no, like those are tech reports. For, for a deep sea project, right? Like it's, it, again, people, it's, you'd be amazed at how many times people think we just made an error um, in our in our map locations. Well, like, no, that's that's legit. That's what it is, yeah. That's funny. Well, you know our Nori and our Tomal have been rated number one and number two largest undeveloped nickel project mm -hmm. on the planet. So, while the grade of these nodules is very, very consistent over a very large area, the abundances are not. So actually having a resource report is really important because there are some areas that have an uneconomic distribution of nodules. You know, we, we measure it as kilograms mm. per square meter. And so on our first block, you know, we'll have 17, 18 kilograms per square meter. But we know that there are some areas of the CCZ that have three and four kilograms and so uneconomic. You know. Oh, that's really interesting. So yeah, I mean, and I would assume, like you said, with the bathymetric mapping, you're basically averaging how many nodules you see per square kilometer, and that's how you calculate that. Yeah, yeah. And we have a cutoff just under 10 kilograms per square meter. Okay, interesting. And how has the technology evolved? I mean, I, I'm assuming that's part of what makes these projects economic now is that the technology has kind of caught up with the opportunity, both on the the demand side, right? We need more of these metals yep. that are in the nodules, but also on the supply side and the ability to, I don't know if extract is the right word. You're right. There's been a lot of technology improvements. And so I think the early prototypes went down and scraped the seafloor, whereas now our machines use uh, an engineering principle known as the Coanda effects. And basically we fire a jet of water to them. And as the collector head moves away, it entraps the nodule and lifts them. And so that minimizes the impact on the seafloor. And we impact about the top five, maybe 10 centimeters in some places. And then we, um, the only processing we do at sea is really to separate the, the sediment at the seafloor. So we leave that behind and then we put the nodules into a riser pipe, which goes up to the, up to the production vessel ahead. But I think, the main improvement is reliability, because if you mm. see what they were doing in the 1970s, that was pioneering stuff. And of course, what's happened since then is offshore oil and gas, pipeline, trench lane, cable lane has all expanded enormously. And so the, the operational expertise available to us now makes us almost a technology integrator more so than an innovator. So that's helpful. No, that's a that's a really cool point that there's a lot that comes from these other industries that sometimes people forget do operate in kind of the deep ocean mm. space, laying technology, like you said, there's a lot of lessons that you guys have been able to pick up and, and integrate from those other spaces. And and that's been our strategy. We we wanted to bring industrial partners in, we bring that operational expertise. And there's no better example than Olsi's who are one of our major investors and are also building our first production system. So for the last 35 years, they have been laying pipe in the deep ocean. They mm -hmm. operate, you might have heard of the Nord Stream 2 and you know, a lot of the big pipelines, you know, there's two or three companies that do them. But 
but All Seas is 100% owned by Edward Perriner. He's an engineer. He has built the world's biggest boat with the largest single lift record. It's if you know these oil platforms, you know they can take five to six months to demobilize them. Whereas Edward built mm-hmm. this boat that you can saddle up around it, cut the legs off, lift it up, take it back to shore, and do all the decommissioning in a very safe environment. You know he can take that five to six month at sea process and turn it into one or two days. And um, it's an amazing piece of engineering. I, I was on it recently. So they're engineering driven. You know, they love the idea of solving problems. And, and when they lay those pipelines, like that boat, it's, I think it's, um, it's close to 470 meters long, fully extended. And yeah, it's a big old boat. It is laying pipe 365 days, 24 hours a day. I mean, it is a production, mm. you know, they are, they have supply boats coming on, putting new pipe on board and like it, it's an amazing thing to witness. And so bringing that sort of operational expertise into this project just puts us so far ahead. Mm-hmm. And so it's exciting. Well, that's, that's really cool. And then on, on the flip side, um, you know, we talk a lot on the podcast with, with different folks in the mining industry about the demand, right? For the metal and minerals that are going to drive the low carbon economy, right? And I know that's certainly a big part of, of what you all look at and why it's important. Yeah. So could you kind of maybe talk a little bit about that? Like, how does this big push into green energy, electric vehicles, all that great stuff, how has that kind of changed the game for you all, if it has? Mm, no, it really has. I mean, people have just started to appreciate. And when I say people, I mean, people are in the street, that moving away from fossil fuels is going to be very metal intensive. And so, you know, where on earth are these metals going to come from? And, and no one has lo- bothered thinking about it, right? No one wonders, you know, where does the cobalt in my iPhone come from? And, you know, where are the battery metals coming from? But, but thankfully, you know, there's a real push now for more transparency, right? People want to know what's the origin of these materials and regulators want to know. And then we saw the Inflation Reduction Act come through with a really important Mm -hmm. piece of legislation that says, if you want access to this pool of money, you have to be able to show that you're sourcing from our free trade partners to this percent and then that percent. And I got to say, that was a real boost for us because you know, we think mm-hmm. our resource is one of the only ways that battery EV makers, battery cell makers can meet those targets is by the supply of metals from polymetallic nodules. Because, you know, we can take that 50,000 mile supply line because, you know, things end up in China or Japan and then they end up in the US. So it's estimated the supply line before that cell makes it to a customer's 50,000 miles, those raw materials. So we can turn that into a thousand mile supply line. So mm-hmm. that has some enormous advantages. And, and because we're operating in the high seas in international waters, the first port of call is the origin of the product. So this will be American products that can be made with American jobs, put into American cars, sold to American customers. I mean, this is an amazing opportunity for the USA. But it's also a big opportunity for other countries as well, because they're facing the same problem, right? Where do the materials mm-hmm. come from? And, and the uncomfortable truth about 
the supply chain. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of very responsible resource companies and mining companies, you know, and I think there are improvements being made. But if you look at the pipeline, let's say nickel, then, you know, we've got a declining production of nickel. It's only Indonesian nickel laterite that's going to put growth into it. And that comes with such a heavy environmental cost. I mean, you know, it'll cost 100 kilos of CO2 for every kilogram of nickel. And that's before we measure the impact of tailings and waste and pushing out indigenous communities and so on. So, you know, there's a lot to the story. And I think that's what we see, you know, at Prospector when you get into the just the data, right? Because what we're able to see is basically the pipeline mm. of the whole world's publicly traded projects, TSX and ASX. And we see all of those projects owned by all of those companies and where they are in the development pipeline, right? And you can break it down any way you want. But um, bottom line, it's going to take a lot of projects coming online. <laughs> of all, you know, I mean, it, it's massive, the gap between the demand for these metals and minerals and the supply that will come online in the time that we're going to need that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I, I do, I agree. I think pe- you, you mentioned people are just starting to wake up and you're even seeing this finally in like financial institutions, mm. right? Hey, someone's going to have to finance this stuff, <laughs> right? Everybody wants the metal. Everybody wants the product so we can make all this stuff. Mm. But that requires groups to start thinking about investing in the mining and metal space who haven't traditionally done that, mm. right? Because the pool of capital in Toronto and London and, you know, in Australia, I mean, the pool of capital of folks who have traditionally done it is not enough to build all of these projects that we're collectively going to need, yeah. which is why I think it's really neat that there are projects out there like yours that are so different mm-hmm. in many aspects that hopefully try to, you know, it will draw attention that there are a lot of ways for folks to invest in the space mm-hmm. that aren't the traditional way. Yeah, no, I hope so too. Because cost of capital is the biggest thing that we have to manage going forward and getting you know, so this industry does need to be financed. You know, the resources sector, full stop, needs to be financed. And, right. And, of course, um, those interests aren't always aligned, are they? Because there's the inducement mm-hmm. price on the one hand and commodities tend to be very fluctuating in value. It's, there's a lot of things to balance. And that's why some of the geopolitical developments this year have made governments stand up and come and provide some of that funding. Mm-hmm shortfall and so i'm I'm encouraged by what i see at the moment and so uh yeah fingers crossed there (laughs) yeah that's where uh i've chatted with a few folks that i I think we as an industry need to start marketing an investment in mining as a as an investment in infrastructure yes right and in the same way that governments have to finance and build roads right and bridges and ports and waterways the new roads and bridges and waterways are going to be the materials that we need to build electric vehicles and batteries to store all of the energy, right? That the new economy is going to going to operate on. That that in fact is infrastructure. It's just dispersed yeah. throughout kind of the the consumers of the economy. So, uh, yeah, bit of a tangent, but yeah, I I really think that that's hopefully where we're headed in terms of folks starting to understand the value yeah. of the mining industry. Yeah, for sure. And when you when you talk about bringing jobs into the U.S., which of course is like a hot topic in the news right now, like you said with the with the act that was just passed, you mentioned that it's the port of call. So, like, where 
where will the nodules come into the U.S.? And are you guys already building a processing facility or will it go to an existing one? How does that end of the, the chain work? We've completed our onshore pilot processing work. And um, mm-hmm. we did that up in Sudbury for the pyrometallurgical part. We're now undertaking the hydromet pilot work, but that's you know pretty straightforward. What we found is that if you can process nickel laterites, then you can take our nodules for processing. Okay. Now the problem with that, ten years ago, I would have thought, oh great, means we can just send our nodules to China and other places. But of course, geopolitics have changed that now. There are now less places mm-hmm. that are processing nickel laterites that are not in China, but there are some. And so mm. one of our options is that we partner with some of those companies or put in place tolling agreements to allow them to process our nodules. However, for me, what would be much more exciting and certainly my desire is for us to build that processing capacity in markets like the USA. Um, you know, I've just come back from mm-hmm. the GCC region, and there is no doubt that there is an appetite from some of those countries to get into the processing of these materials as well. Sure. That would mean building afresh. And mm-hmm. for us to justify doing that, we'd certainly want some government support and a deep desire. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, getting a new industry started is pretty challenging. I can vouch for that. And you need everything going in your favor. And clearly, if you date, go back to my presentations five years ago, I was talking about security of supply back then. And no one really thought about it until the Russia invaded Ukraine. All of a sudden, that was a major issue. And security of supply, great. And now, of course, the whole incentives that the U.S. government are putting in place is going to drive behavior. So I think that's going to be a really good thing. Mm-hmm for any U.S. potential producers or Canadian or, or in our case, uh, polymetallic nodule resource. No, it's a, I think for me having, you know, my entree into the industry was, I was a geologist, but really started to work with the industry as a U.S. government employee, right, running the program in Afghanistan. And even at that time, you know, we, we did a lot of work on a rare earth carbonatite project in southern Afghanistan at the time. And, you know, there was like this pocket of folks even then who were already talking about, you know, China's dominance in the rare earth space, but even, you know, other really critical minerals. And to me, it does feel like, whoa, in the last year, it's like everybody just woke up <laughs> to something that, that, a, that a smaller group of people have been trying to get attention to for a very long time. Mm. And, it, you know, I do think that it's hugely beneficial to the industry because, you know, the U.S. government in a lot of ways is like an aircraft carrier. I mean, it doesn't turn really fast, but once it's headed in a direction, you know, it's it's going, right? Or maybe a cruise ship would be a better analogy. Um, and so <laughs> just kind of yeah. get everybody on board. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm really fascinated to see how this changes. And uh, and again, I, I think it's kind of the right time because you're also seeing it all the way down to the, the vehicle manufacturers, mm-hmm. right? Advocating for this type of support for the industry. Yeah, so it is. I, I agree. It's really exciting. And and I guess that piece of legislation that got passed in recent days, I mean, it's putting a big incentive out there, right? And if you look at mm-hmm. the automakers, they've been slow to react, haven't they? I'm sure some of your other friends in the industry would say the same. Like they keep talking the talk and they've gone to Indonesia and now they've had to pull that back. 
And, you know, I've been um, of a libertarian mind frame most of my life, but I must say, I've really enjoyed the uh, actions of government recently. <laughs> COVID, they saved the world from yeah. a horrible mess, right? And, um, and driving yeah. behavior is so important at this moment because what I was really worried about was that Indonesian nickel that comes with such a heavy environmental and human cost could become acceptable. Mm. That would be just the worst thing for the planet. And so, yeah. you know, my hat off to Senator Manchin and everyone else who, you know, really put these clauses in place. And I just hope now that we can follow through on it, you know? Yeah. And I think that's where, to me, it's, it's also a huge aspect of being a global citizen, right? If folks, you know, there's a lot of that, not in my backyard, certainly in America, right? But I hope that folks are starting to understand that the closer it is to your backyard, the more influence you have on whether it's being done responsibly and in a way that you feel comfortable with, right? Um, and I think that's that's a huge positive that's hopefully come out of this. And I've worked in a lot of emerging and frontier markets, and I'm also a huge advocate for investment in those spaces. And like mining can be done well and sustainably and lift whole economies up out of poverty, right? I mean, that is absolutely true in emerging and frontier markets, but there is a role to play for developed nations in taking some responsibility that, hey, you want all the products, you got to support this activity also going on where where you are, right? We can't just offshore at all to these countries that, that folks have never really heard of or paid attention to. It's got to be a mix. Everyone's got to have some skin in the game. They do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, uh, the last question I, I always ask folks on the podcast, I don't know if you were prepped for this or not, um, but is, you know, if you could wave your magic wand mm. and change one thing about the mining industry as a whole overnight, what would you change? And we always ask this after you've had a cocktail. So <laughs> folks are usually more than honest. <laughs> I, would, I would like every project, whether on sea or on land, to be put through the lens of an LCA. And so we could be comparing impacts across mm -hmm. a whole agreed set of spectrums because, you know, what that would tell you is what are the, what are the good projects and what are the really bad ones that we shouldn't go anywhere near, you know, mm. nickel sulfide projects in Canada. Great. Nickel ladder yeah. projects in Indonesia, bad, <laughs> you know, because mm. if we could find a way of getting everyone to tune into that and adhere to better standards, then I think that would be net net very valuable for all of the participants, all the good actors. And that would then, mm. you know, drive car makers to want to meet those standards. And that would get consumers to only buy products that have got that stamp on it. Mm. So that's what I'd And what is an LCA? A life cycle analysis. By that, what we mean is you can't look through the lens of just CO2 or deforestation mm -hmm. or biodiversity loss or water usage. You've got to look through all of those factors and they all go to make up mm. a set of impacts that you then need to compare project to project. Mm. So for example, if you were looking to develop a, a low carbon sulfide project, but it was in a really pristine ecosystem that, you know, that the tailings were going to cause a problem. Well, you know, that would be a red cross, but 
the nature of a lot of those projects is that they don't have those characteristics. They, they are really low impact. And, and through marginal gains and improvements right. in mining practices and electrification, you know, the CO2 impacts getting less and less and less. But there are some projects, mm -hmm. and you've just got to look at the landscape, right? They, they tend to be located in barren sort of places, you know, where there's just not a lot of biomass around them. But then we support projects that are in the most biodiverse ecosystems on the planet, you know, and we think that's okay. Like, so we've just got to find a better way where we can measure projects against each other. And, um, you know, if the whole mining industry could agree to that standard, then I think it would be a great thing for the planet and a great thing for projects that should be developed but struggle to get affordable capital to do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I And I think that's also where there needs to be a recognition. And I think some of it's come from like the greenwashing that's gone on a little bit about like zero carbon, right? In reality, there there is going to be impact of any kind of natural resource program, right? It's it's about managing that risk yes. and evaluating the risk, right? And as we would say, you know, risk mitigation, mm. what's the appropriate level of impact for the value of the project and, and the space that it's in, right? And I think maybe some nuance has gotten lost in some of the marketing um, that zero, zero carbon, zero impact is not realistic and is not something that happens in any kind of mining or extraction, mm. right? And I think people don't take us seriously when we say that, right? But starting to really be more focused on what's reasonable and what do we have to be willing to accommodate and manage is probably a more responsible tone. And it requires the ability to compare. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Gerard. Uh, it's been great having you on and, and having a drink and look forward to to following your project and, and having you back on sometime soon. Yeah, I look forward to that too, Emily. And thanks. I mean, this is the best podcast, right? <laughs> no, because you did. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Okay, take care.